I saw that apparently AMC and a couple of other big movie chains in the States are kind of basing their reopening schedule uh, on Tenet, uh, Christopher Nolan's movie in July, uh, which I think is yeah, like... because that was the one that was like never going to move. Well, eh? yeah, I think they were, they know that like, you know, as we both know, and we talked about, I think when uh, the Tenet trailer came out uh, a few months ago, like uh, Christopher Nolan is one of the last remaining directors who's kind of like appointment viewing in a theater right like uh you you kind of build your schedule around his movies being in uh, and seeing them in like the biggest screen and the best like conditions possible so he's got tenet coming out scheduled for i think july 17th and unlike a lot of other movies in the whole covid19 situation uh the distributors and i guess warner brothers didn't want to uh shift this I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world. It still feels like a long way away, but... It is a long way away. That's two months away. More than two months. But at least there's like two things about it that, that kind of gives me hope. It's like, A, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, we have like a possible time when we can go back and start watching stuff in theaters again. Um, and it's going to be one of the biggest movies, one of the best movies to see in a theater. So I can't think of a better way to kind of come back to watching movies again than a Christopher Nolan movie. If this wasn't Christopher Nolan, I'd say you'd be setting up yourself for disappointment, but I'm just as excited for Tenet as any other Christopher Nolan movie, and so far he's never disappointed, so... Sure, yeah. Welcome to the 73rd episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. A free-flowing conversation between two guys who love film and TV. My name is Jason Chen, and I'm joined by my co-host Robert Snow. Today, we discuss David Lynch's Dune, the 1984 sci-fi classic that will spawn a remake later this year. Under the Silver Lake, Andrew Garfield's slacker stoner whodunit about his neighbor who mysteriously disappears. Arctic, the Icelandic survival drama film starring Mads Mikkelsen. And The Last Dance, the ESPN documentary chronicling Michael Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls in 1998. So, Rob, you are one of the few people I know who've seen and know a lot about Dune. Yeah, I guess so. So this is like my first foray into Dune. Um, It popped up on Netflix. And to my surprise, my mother has actually seen it. And she and I were both talking about how like she thought because it came out a year after Return of the Jedi, how she thought in some ways it was better than Star Wars. And so... That piqued my interest, so I went home and I watched it, and I was pretty blown away. I really, really enjoyed it. Through sound and motion, you will be able to paralyze nerves, shatter bones, set fires, suffocate an enemy or burst his organs. We will kill until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. Yeah, it is a... I watched it with my brother for the first time uh, maybe like two years ago. Because uh, it's been uh, it's been on Netflix Canada for a couple of years now, and uh, I mean, I I guess you know with, with the popular consciousness of the movie, um, it was a bit of a bomb when it came out. Like critics didn't like it. Um, it was it was mired in like production hell. David Lynch had a really tough time actually making it. Lots of studio intervention and stuff. Um, so. It, I guess it's is it kind of like it was probably a cheap acquisition for Netflix, and that's why it's it's been available. But uh, yeah, I kind of stumbled into it too, and I I think my first kind of 
or what primed me to watch the Lynch movie was actually the documentary uh, Yodorowsky's right. Day, which came out, I think, 2016, 2017. It was also on Netflix for a while. I'm not sure if it is right now. Um, but that told the story of how um, Alejandro Yodorowsky is a uh, Chilean director of very surrealist, odd, art house type stuff, tried to make an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune novel in 1974. And at the time, this we're talking like three years before the original Star Wars, like there was very little appetite for big uh, space opera type stuff with, you know, characters with unpronounceable names and strange dynasties <laughs> and, you know, all of the things that we would recognize now from Star Wars was present in Dune. And, you know, the, Frank Herbert's original novel came out in 1965 before even the original Star Trek uh, started. So, like, it's kind of... Uh, it's one of those kind of weird series where its roots are in everything that we've enjoyed in sci-fi and fantasy in the past few decades, but very few people probably like yourself and, and myself for the longest time didn't really have an understanding of like how integrated it was. Yeah. I think that's always sort of the case where like the pioneer never ever gets enough credit. Um, so Dune has served the basis for a lot of sci-fi movies, kind of like how even though the Lord of the Rings for us is sort of like the first, you know, fantasy epic book that we are introduced to, it's also based on a lot of previous works about like folklore and even Harry Potter too takes a lot of sort of inspiration from previous uh, literary works about heroes and, and good versus evil and this hero's journey. What most impressed me about Dune was that Unlike, I think, a lot of the critics, I didn't find it that hard to follow. It it took me, like, the second watch to really sort of get everything. But the first time you see it, it's a pretty um, basic good versus evil tale about an ordained hero that comes. Um, there are a lot of things that I thought were weird. And I, I, I think I briefly texted you about this. But um, in terms of, like, the special effects for that day and age, though, I thought they were pretty advanced. I think there are certain parts that drag, and to me, the second half of the movie, especially where uh, Paul Atreides, the main character, becomes one of the Fremen, I think that part is a lot less interesting because that's just him ending up like kicking the bad guy's butts. There, there's less of a growth in his like internal journey as in the first half. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And like, um, uh, I'm right now I'm reading the original novel because I wanted to kind of immerse myself even more in anticipation of Denis Villeneuve's movie coming up in December, uh, if, if it sticks to its schedule. Um, and yeah, like I'm at that part now where he, where Paul Atreides has, you know, his family have come to this uh, planet called, uh, it's called casually Dune, but its real name is Arrakis. And it's the only source in the galaxy for this uh, valuable mineral called Spice. And spice is kind of like a combination of a very wealthy tradable substance, but also a drug that can um, enhance a person's senses and turn their eyes this kind of uh, brilliant shade of blue, um, including the white part, which makes the people who take it well, look a little bit extra creepy. Um, but yeah, I'm at the point in the book where, you know, his family have been, they tried to take over um, Dune from the previous thief that uh, had uh, control of it, the Harkonnens, and he's been kicked out into the desert, and he's about to join up with the Fremen and, you know, start that part of his journey. And, and yeah, I would say, like, you know, while I'm not at the end of the book yet, I am picking up on that same thing I remember from the movie, where you do have that kind of, 
construction of the Paul Atreides character off the top. And then things just kind of seem to be leveling out a little bit because he comes into his powers and then he's just like, nobody can oppose him. Pretty early on too. Yeah. yeah. Nobody can oppose him. He has like, you know, he can drive the sandworms. He can, um, you know, fight anybody, you know. And, and uh, I mean, maybe, maybe Herbert's novel does... Diverge from the movie at a certain point. I'll have to see in the next uh, little bit as I finish it up. Speaking of the new 2020 Dune, though, this actually really makes me really excited because if the 1984 Dune was bad, I don't think I'd be as um, open to it. I think part of the reason I'm also intrigued too because it is in the 1984 version, there's like a huge part of the movie's internal dialogue, like characters whisper a narration and it's supposed to represent the thoughts that are going through their head. Right. And it's it's very obvious, but it's a little distracting at times. And I wonder how Denis Veneuve is going to do that. Um, because a lot of it, a lot of Dune requires background knowledge, a lot of narration, a lot of exposition too. So I'm curious as to how they're going to do that. Yeah. And I think that's something that Lynch in his movie took directly from the book because uh, from what, right. I've, what I've seen in the book, there is a lot of like internal dialogue there as well where, you know, you've got Paul Atreides, who's this kind of, he's the son of the Duke. You know, he's been trained in all of these different powers, mentalist type powers where he can kind of, kind of read people's minds. He can anticipate what they want and things like that. So there's a lot of passages of the book that's kind of took taken up with him performing that analysis so he can kind of think a few steps ahead. Um, so uh, yeah, it would be, I don't know how Villeneuve would do that because he hasn't really worked with voiceover in a lot of his previous movies. Like there have definitely been characters who are very, you know, internally focused, but they don't really, you know, you, he doesn't bother to kind of make what they're thinking about that obvious. Right. And he's also said a number of times that he's not, taking inspiration from any other source, even the 1984 Dune. Like, this is his vision. This is how he imagined Dune to look like when he read the book as a boy, and it's right up his alley. So I'm really intrigued by it. I think um, I can see Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides working out very well. Um, The rest of the cast hasn't been fully revealed, but we know most of the major characters. And I got to say, Stellan Skarsgård, has big shoes to fill as Baron Harkonnen because the original Baron Harkonnen I thought was terrifying. Yeah, well, the, the you know one thing with Lynch is like in that movie, and I think one of the reasons why maybe people in 1984 didn't respond very positively to it is, you know, Dune is is a very very creepy, very weird kind of world, and you know, it's also for that time is politically charged because a lot of people criticize Baron Harkonnen so sort sort of being like a, a a proxy for the criticism of the AIDS oh yeah, um, yeah issue yeah. that was going on at the time and like and, and like blatant yeah. anti-homosexuality yeah and he's like he's built up with all of these prosthetics he's this massively obese character who's who can't even move on his own he has to get like these little floating things to kind of carry him around yeah. this like little helicopter type things yeah. you know there's this kind of this very loathsome visual that accompanies Harkonnen and I mean I can see them doing that with Skarsgård like I can see Skarsgård kind of yes. go, going the the route of like uh, the character he played in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies where he's got all this prosthetics and stuff added to him um so i can you know i can picture that in my mind but then you've also got uh, uh oscar isaac as uh timothy chalamet's father lead atreides rebecca ferguson as as lady jessica um timothy chalamet's that's a great casting yeah like she's she's got that kind of like uh reserved kind of uh strength to her that uh mm-hmm. that i think the character mm-hmm. calls Agreed. for um and then uh 
as Duncan Idaho, you have who's like a uh, like a soldier um, intelligence type guy. Uh, you've got um, Jason Momoa, and as Gurney Halleck, you have uh, Josh Brolin. So who is played by Patrick Stewart in the original in the 1984 film? Yeah. Who, by the way, I don't think has ever had hair, huh? No, apparently he lost his hair when he was in his twenties. <laughs> So, yeah, so I was looking at it. I was like, is that Patrick Stewart? Wait, shouldn't he have hair because it's 1984? Wait, no, that is Patrick Stewart. Wait, has he never, ever had hair? That's kind of like the thought process you go through (laughs) before you realize, oh, it is Patrick Stewart. Um, There's a lot of other recognizable names in the original 1984 um, movie. Yeah, a lot of people who would go on to work with Lynch in some of his later projects, especially Twin Peaks, like uh, um, Everett Gill or McGill, I forget. Um, he goes on to be um, uh, in Twin Peaks. Uh, Jack Nance, I think, was in there. Yeah, Kyle MacLachlan, obviously. Yeah, Kyle MacLachlan, obviously. You know, Agent Cooper from Twin Peaks. He's uh, he was David Lynch's hero in uh, in Dune. So it's worth a watch for sure. And you know, there's definitely some I would say so some Lynchian stuff. You know, this grotesque kind of looking aliens and long periods of silence and things like that. There's a lot of yeah. There's also a lot of like sexual tension. Yes, yeah, and, and you know that's something in Lynch anyway. Like, I mean, anyone who's seen Mulholland Drive or uh, or any of those uh, movies, you know, will recognize certain you know this kind of like very over overwhelming sense of tension and anxiety and stuff. Right. And I was asking you about this too after I watched the movie. Like, well. What was the deal with like the space guild's warm character that was oddly phallic? I don't know. I don't and, know. Like there seem dream sequences that uh, that Paul Atreides has, and it's just like things shooting out of holes, bunch of bright lights, bright designs, space like images of space fading in and out. Um, like the beginning of the movie when Princess Urulin pops up, it's like her her uh, her head, uh, just like in the middle of the page in like a. a, a uh, with the space as a background and she kind of yeah. fades in and out as she like narrates this because at one point she's like oh I forgot to tell you something and then her face fades back in and it's really funny and very Lynchian too I wish he was more proud of this film because I really enjoyed it but uh, uh, the TV version was apparently the one that was hacked to bits by the production studios and, and he famously rejected that version as well yeah, they just had a really bad time on it. Like he was, he was getting very um, oppressive kind of notes from the studio, and the studio was probably you know terrified about how much money there was being spent, and you know it was, they, the whole the whole thing was was just a, a bad time for everyone involved. And somebody asked Lynch whether he was interested in seeing the Villeneuve one, and he didn't he didn't really <laughs> sound like he was. Um, yeah. I, I imagine yeah, he doesn't right. want to be anywhere near that material any anytime soon. Uh, but you know, uh, I, I'm I'm excited by the stills that we've seen so far from uh, right. you know Vanity Fair. I'm sure a trailer will probably not be not too far away if they've got the production stills out. It's gonna. It's not just the one movie either. They're gonna do a second movie, assuming that this one isn't a complete financial failure. So uh, uh, yeah, that's that's something to look forward to at the end of the yeah. year. I, I think the the obvious split, as you said before, is the two year gap where he becomes part of the Fremen. But we shall see. Uh, speaking of a bad time at theaters, there was a movie I saw at 2018 Vancouver International Film Festival that a lot of people liked, but I walked to the theater being one of the haters. And I want to get your thoughts on this. This is Under the Silver Lake, uh, a sort of slacker stoner comedy drama whodunit about a, a guy, Andrew, played by Andrew Garfield, who quickly falls in love with his neighbor called uh played by Riley Keough who all of a sudden disappears. 
yeah, and that's basically all you have to go on. Um, it is a, it's set in LA and I think like not in 2018, but like maybe it's that they dated it at some point in the, in the, the actual script of the movie. It was like 2010 or something like that. So like not like really far back, but you know, at least a few years from the, the date of the, the movie's release. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense of the time period. And we're never quite clear what Andrew Garfield's character does for a living. It's suggested that maybe he works in the movie business, maybe he's an actor. Um, but we know that he hasn't been working in a while and he's he's like almost flat broke. Um, his landlord wants to kick him out of his apartment. His muscle car gets repossessed. You know, he's, uh, he's just got like a, mm-hmm. a bundle of bills in his pocket and that's pretty much it. And no real, like, reason to do anything. But he happens to notice this girl move in uh, next to, next door to him. And uh, he wants to kind of, like, start something with her, like a relationship. He feels like there's a connection. And then she just moves out in the middle of the night. And what, you know, he kind of starts off on this sort of shambolic kind of investigation. Like, he's not, he's not a private eye. He doesn't have any kind of real skills to actually track her down. Mm-hmm. But he kind of, like sort of flops his way into a series of scenarios, kind of like Joaquin Phoenix's character in, in Inherent Vice, and slowly slowly uncovers this kind of like conspiracy that's maybe not a conspiracy, but it involves like rich people in LA and yeah. Well, isn't she pretty? Earth Angel, Earth Angel. She was killed. Oh, won't you be mine? Well, Along with Jefferson Sevens, but I... I think you already knew that, huh? No, I did not. I don't care what's fashionable or cool. It's all silly and it's all meaningless. After you you said you watched this movie, I actually went back to Letterboxd and, and, and just kind of dug up what I wrote. And one of the lines I wrote was that you should save your money and watch Inherent Vice instead because it is just that much better film. So the film that the thing that people love about this film is like they like to point out all the Easter eggs that are apparently sprinkled throughout. Right. I hate that in movies. You already know that. Yeah. I'm more interested in his journey. And these clues that he gets are just like either um, too ridiculous to believe or it goes over your head if you don't get the reference. And all of a sudden at the end, he he kind of stumbles upon this truth that he ends up uh, confronting this cult, I yeah. think it was. Yeah. And and so what you're left with is this like really meandering sort of movie where you kind of watch Andrew Garfield fumble around. Although I think visually it is very interesting, plot-wise, character-wise, even dialogue-wise, I found it a little tough to follow and tough to actually know why this movie was actually made. Um, yeah. But do you understand why people like it? That, to me, was the most baffling thing. I mean, at the risk of sounding like uh, I have a serious case of FOMO, uh, fear of missing out, <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like this is a movie that, you know, if you're in a certain clique, um, specifically like people who either live in the neighborhood of Silver Lake in LA, right. which is known as being a real like place. A, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's known as being like the hipster kingdom of LA. Um, kind of like the, uh, uh, you know, the Brooklyn, um, of Williamsburg, Williamsburg, you know, that, that kind of, uh, demographic, you know, uh, fairly affluent 30 and 40 somethings, uh, all living together, going to each other's secret record launches and, uh, you know, uh, screenings of dumb indie movies that aren't actually going to make any money and, you know, eating at vegan, uh, 
restaurants and that kind of thing. So that's like where it's set. And I feel like part of this movie is about kind of like gently satirizing those people and kind of pointing out that like, you know, their existence is a little bit uh, pretentious or maybe a lot pretentious. And if it is satire though, I like it was lost on me that was because it, it doesn't lampoon them enough. No, it doesn't. It like it kind of goes a little bit down that road and then it kind of like flops over into like a, a hardcore and hard boiled kind of noir type thing. Right. So it, you know, it wants a little bit of everything. And then, you know, like you were saying, there's all these movie references to like how to marry a millionaire and other 1950s like slapstick comedies. And so there's a bit of like a La La Land, Damien Chazelle movie nerd kind of thing sprinkled over it where, (laughs) you know, you get, you can take a drink every time you see a classic movie poster for a movie that you've seen and probably get really wasted by the end of Mm -hmm. it. Um, But I mean that, I mean, I sort of identify with that kind of love of movies, but I don't know. It doesn't feel like it really loves movies. It just feels like, you know, it's kind of saying that that uh, really shitty people can also live in L.A. and claim to be fans of all of these classic works of art, but but not really understand them or really identify with them. For how much it want to talks about like what kind of films are good and what kind of t- films are worthwhile. This is not to me a worthwhile film in itself. No, well, Garfield's character has no arc. Like, you know, they, they he kind really of doesn't, they kind of have him conclude things by discovering that not only is, did he really not learn anything or grow at all as a character over the course of it, but the cult that he kind of exposed doesn't really matter. And like, there's, really like nobody who's involved in it really wants out this is sort of like the time where i was really kind of anti andrew garfield i didn't really like him as spider-man and this is just another movie where i just got constantly annoyed by him and his character um and fittingly i I think he played that character very well it's hard for me to to imagine another actor in his place um this is also i think the beginning of my love affair with riley keogh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah but then they're like she's uh she's in it for like five minutes though eh? like it, it is definitely in andrew garfield let's see how many times we can have a deer stuck in his headlights look on his face because he just like discovered something so tangential to what he's actually looking for that you're supposed to be intrigued and and, and sort of move on with him in this mystery journey that ultimately has no villain has no like twist or has no real victim Actually, the victim is us. Like, I can't believe yeah. I paid for this. But I, And it's it's such a mixed bag. I mean, like, you know, I get you know, some people have said that they enjoy, you know, they enjoy the movie for, A, all those references that we've talked about, but also the fact that it has no conclusive ending, like the fact that, that nothing matters and that yeah, it's... Yeah, ooh, so meta and a movie without a beginning or end. Yeah, ooh. and I'm like, that's just nihilism. Like, they, to me, that just doesn't, you know... <laughs> that to me is a waste of time. <laughs> if you're that frustrated about living in Silver Lake and putting up with people's, you know, wealthy parties and stuff like that, like, just move. Right. Like, don't make a movie about it. It feels a little bit like the director was kind of pouring a little bit of frustration into this. The other thing that, that uh, and this was pointed out by um, a guest of our... That we've had on the show before, uh, Peter Henderson, a good friend of ours. Um, there's a there's a bit of a current of misogyny running through this, this yes, movie. There that is. is and violence too. That is a little bit hard to take in certain scenes. Like there are. Uh, I don't know, remember you, the violence. What scene are you talking well, about? Well, at one point, uh, Andrew Garfield like kills a dude and a wealthy dude in his mansion by smashing his brains in with Kurt Cobain's guitar. 
And then like the movie oh, just ne- right. never acknowledges what the impact of that is. Like, okay, he just murdered Again, a guy. Like, yeah, nobody- it clearly wasn't memorable, right? Yeah. So. And at another point, like he catches his kids like playing pranks on people by um, uh, like keying their cars and stuffing bu- uh, bubble gum in the handles and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And he catches one of the kids who's doing it further down the street and like pummels him almost de- to death with his fists. I actually found that scene kind of funny. <laughs> Because I thought that kid, did, like, he deserved it, but... The, the kid probably deserved, a, like, a quick tap or something, but the, but Garfield's character goes on him, like, really hard yes. for what is essentially just a prank, you know? It, it, it becomes a bit of a fetish, right? Kind of like Tarantino with his violence, yeah. Yeah, it's clear that, like, Garfield's character has, like, a violence or an anger problem or something that's that's not well managed. Uh, but, but the... Well, let's face it, all these hipsters have huge problems that need to be addressed, but... And, and, and then there's, like, you know, the, like... Obviously, Garfield is, uh, he does his own share of nude scenes in this movie because there's a few sex scenes kind of sprinkled uh, in and out. But um, there's a way higher proportion of just totally uh, naked women just wandering around for no good reason. There's a, a subplot about like a, an assassin type character wearing an owl mask who's just like a, right. uh, like a, a naked woman wandering around wearing this owl mask and ripping people's throats out. Um, there are other women who just like cat, like I get, I get it. Andrew Garfield's an attractive guy, but like he has no trouble getting women, uh, who then usually meet like rather violent ends. You know, he's, uh, he ends up, um, having sex with a woman in the Silver Lake Reservoir, but then she's shot by somebody mysteriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she just kind of like tumbles to the bait, to the, to the, uh, bottom of the reservoir, totally naked, but covered in blood. And so there's an exploitation kind of flavor to it that, uh, that doesn't help. A, a little bit. Like they want you to make this character feel paranoid, right? And, and sure. he is to a certain extent. Um, but. It just never goes through all the way with any of its ideas. That was the most frustrating part. To yeah. Me. Yeah. So, yeah, if you see this thing come up, like, you know, maybe you're one of those people who uh, likes that kind of like cyclical, vaguely nihilist kind of stuff. And maybe it's for you. But uh, I would say more likely than not, it's worth a pass. <laughs> <laughs> it made a couple top 10 lists for for critics, which I don't understand. But sure. There's people out there who identify with that kind of ennui, that kind of, you know, midlife crisis or early midlife crisis kind <laughs> of L.A. based lifestyle. I don't know. Right, right. Um, speaking of movies that tend to alienate people, though, oh. um, I'm curious about because I, I actually haven't heard of this at all. But how did you um, find out about Arctic? Yeah, so this is something that uh, it came up on Amazon a few months ago. Maybe it had been there for a while. It's a 2018 movie, and uh, it's a man versus nature movie about uh, a guy played by Mads Mikkelsen who has found himself stranded in, you know, north of the Arctic Circle, victim of a plane crash, the only survivor. And the only way I found out about this movie was because I had been following the director from a very uh, long time ago when he started out as a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the director's name is Joe Penna, but uh, people on the internet might know him better by his uh, YouTube channel name, Mystery Guitar Man. And he's like one of the original, like back in the very founding of YouTube kind of creators where Mm -hmm. he made a name for himself creating these very um, kind of eccentric musical videos where he would appear on camera with this kind of crazy hair and these this pair of sunglasses and he would be using uh, fast editing and kind of cloning multiple versions of himself playing different eccentric instruments to kind of recreate 
recognizable pop songs. And his videos would be very short, like maybe maybe two minutes, three minutes long, but they clearly took huge amounts of effort to produce where he was individually recording like sounds and then kind of slowly layering them together to create a song that you recognize. And he did that for a long time. He probably made a decent amount of money doing it, you know, on that first wave of YouTube talent. And then he slowly transitioned into short films. And most of the short films of his that he posted on YouTube had kind of like a Mm sci-fi flavor to them. Um, so I guess he was able to get the financing together to make his first feature and decided to kind of move away from all the stuff that he was doing on YouTube, you know, the, the sci-fi shorts and the, uh, the musical videos and stuff and just do a straight up man V nature kind of thing. Right. So this movie, the Arctic or just Arctic actually, uh, reported budget of $2 million. So very low budget film, uh, grossed about 4 million at the box office and it is basically cast away both Mads Mikkelsen and in the Arctic. So um, we don't actually sort of see the origins of how he ended up there. The movie just starts with him trying to survive day-to-day life. And he's already at the point where he's got fishing lines. He's got a routine. He's dug out SOS in the snow. And he's waiting for a response. And one day a helicopter comes. Uh, but a wind comes, helicopter crashes, and he ends up saving one of the two pilots in the, in the, in the helicopter that's supposed to come and save him. Can you hear me? Hello. Do you understand English? Can you squeeze like this? Squeeze. And so... What you have is this man versus nature, but also man versus time conflict because he's got to get uh, the female pilot who's uh, injured heavily from his encampment to a outpost that is uh, several days hikes away. And so what you get is this very taut, very uh, minimal dialogue film in which Mads Mikkelsen's physicality in his portrayal as this man, as this uh, a guy who's been living in the Arctic for God knows how long, is so good. I'm so kind of surprised that this film didn't get as much buzz as it did because to me this is one of the better survival films that I've seen. Um, it kind of reminds me of Rescue Dawn. I don't know if you remember that. But yeah, that's a Christian Bale survival movie that was actually really good, but also just didn't get enough attention. Yeah, that was a Werner Herzog movie actually. Exactly, and I'm just wondering like. Why is it that these sort of survival movies tend not to do well? And remember, we we went to see uh, The Grey, too, with Liam Neeson. That didn't do that well either. Although I found that as a weaker film. But that's another conversation. Throughout the whole film, you actually, I felt cold. Yes. Like, yeah. it's, it's in the middle of April we're watching this, or late April, and I felt cold. Like, I felt freezing like Mads Mikkelsen was. Yeah. Um, and you have to like, you know, as an actor, like Mikkelsen, you know, a- actors have a limited kind of stable of things that they can do on camera to keep you interested. Yeah. And for a movie that has so little dialogue, you know, Mikkelsen maybe goes like 15 minutes at a time without even saying anything. Yeah. He just he just goes, fish, eat, eat. You must eat. Fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so... Apparently, this film was shot over 19 days, and Mickelson afterwards said that this was one of probably the hardest film he ever had to make. I believe it. I mean, he has to, like, not only is he physically, like, out in the elements, but um, his character has to do all kinds of things, like, 
tow try to tow the woman that he's taking care of up this vertical cliff essentially right um and you know uh physically walk through the they had these incredible distances while towing a giant sled behind him mm-hmm. and uh, all of these things that like you know as a human being it must be a, a huge uh it's like a monumental task right yeah yeah it, it is is like all these survival stories are stories about willpower about about overcoming like outstanding and crazy odds just to survive yeah and i guess like maybe maybe the reason these movies don't do super well is you know uh there's a there's a, probably a significant chunk of the audience out there that you know when they go to the movies they want escapism and they want uh like a right what they can recognize as like a, a pretty clear path to resolution um, you know, it, it, right. not, not to paint everybody with a broad brush, but like you go to see an Avengers movie and you know that roughly speaking, even if, uh, you don't get to the end game kind of thing right away, it might take you a few movies to get there. The movie that you are watching at that moment will have some kind of resolution and roughly speaking, the good guys are going to win. But in the survival movies, like there's a pretty 50, 50 chance that the, all the characters are going to die at the end. Yes. And you're just supposed to like, yeah. you know, be impressed by how, uh, how much they sacrificed to even get to where they did when they died. Um, yeah, that's a great point about characters not ex- being expected to survive. Yeah, and it's a hard sell for people. Like, if you're going to go to the movies and you're going to relax after a hard day at work and, you know, you're going to be told, oh, I have to watch a person, like, physically, like, rip themselves apart to try to, like, claw their way back to civilization. Like, maybe it's not the the easiest sell for people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the other... Uh, uh, what was the other movie that this reminded me of? Oh, yeah. Um, the last movie that came out that kind of followed this this rubric that I also quite liked was called All is Lost with uh, Robert Redford. Came out, uh, I think, 2016, 2017, thereabouts. And in that- 2013. Oh, it was older. Okay, so uh, yeah. And it, this is like, um, this one doesn't even have the benefit of a second human being to for the actor to play off of. Um, this is just Robert Redford alone on a boat, like lost in the Pacific. And, uh, he's got to contend with like, you know, a whole different landscape. Obviously he's out in the middle of the water. And again, like hardly any dialogue at all. You can only like grab little bits of information about how the guy came to be in that situation from like very looking very carefully at the frame and kind of analyzing things, mm-hmm. and, you know, all of that. So it, it does take a little bit of effort on the viewer's part to kind of like, stay uh committed to the character the the one there are two other takeaways about this film uh the, uh the one of them was that it amazes me like it puts into perspective how amazingly successful castaway was um not only was castaway like a, a critical success it was a box office hit yeah and i i do i don't know so I think there is something to be said about man being stranded on island full of coconuts versus man being stranded in the Arctic against polar bears. I think one is more um, welcoming to the viewer than the other. Yeah. Um, Because if you're stranded on an island, it's like, hey, he's got the beach and sunshine and coconuts. What else? And let's not forget, Wilson is probably one of the best supporting characters in (laughs) film of all time. Yeah. Well, there's like two things there. I think like, yeah, you're totally right. Like the worst thing that 
Tom Hanks has to worry about is maybe like sunstroke from a survivability. <laughs> you know, at least he's got ready access to fish and shelter and, you know, just right. going out, getting up in the morning doesn't involve like, you know, possibly dying from exposure. Right. Uh, so like, yeah, there's like a, on a survivability level, it's definitely a, a different story. Like Mickelson's got the harder, <laughs> yeah. harder task. But the thing with Castaway, though, that probably made it a bigger success with both audiences and critics was the... Um, it doesn't have that kind of like effort on the viewer's part because we see there's a more clear character arc. Right. We see where Tom Hanks's character began. We know that he was kind of like a bit of an asshole. He made a lot of an asshole. <laughs> and then we see how his experience being stranded on the island changes him and doesn't necessarily give us all the answers at the end. It kind of there's a bit of an ambiguous ending at the end of Castaway, but we see how, you know, maybe he's a better better guy now. Arctic and all is lost, like right. may, maybe these dudes are really bad people and they they actually didn't learn a whole lot, but you know, they they at least like uh accomplished this huge feat of staying alive despite the circumstances. Um the uh, second point I want to talk about is that this film really teases it out like how you think Mads Mikkelsen is going to survive. Um, at the By the end of the film, it gets really, really bleak. You're almost at the point where like, all right, this end, this movie's just going to end with both of the characters dying. There's no way this ends anywhere else. Yeah. But spoilers ahead. Uh, by the end, he manages to contact this helicopter. And this helicopter is like within uh, visible distance. And he, tur- he uh, lights his flare and he even burns his parka to catch their attention. And he starts waving, starts yelling like a madman. And then the two helicopters kind of just like walk around, look around, and then just get back in the helicopter. And it's implied that they don't see him. And then as he's like on his last dying breath, um, he's kind of lying there on the Arctic tundra, just ready to die. The helicopters just kind of like appears like in the background, indicating that they have been saved. That part to me felt cheap because it kind of played with your emotions one more it's kind of one of those like gotcha yeah moments at the end of the film that i really really hate because the entire time you're so tense you see the helicopter you you let your guard down you're like finally all right a sense of relief and then it flies away then it turns instead of to like um fear it turns into anger because you're like how dare you fake me out like that yeah it's a bit of a cake and eat it too kind of situation yeah i know what you mean yeah that was my only gripe about the whole like structure of the movie that part really just really kind of annoyed i can see that being divisive i mean uh there's a movie that i watched at tiff uh maybe two or three years ago as canadian movie uh with dane dehan and uh, tatiana maslany and the movie's called uh, two lovers and a bear and it's also it's set in the Canadian Arctic uh, um, around like a community and it kind of there's more people around, you know, it's a it's kind of like a a drama with like a background of like um, abuse and drug addiction. It's not the most uplifting material, but there's a bit of a, a supernatural kind of thing running through it where I think it's I can't remember if it's Dane DeHaan's character or Maslany's character, but they have the ability to speak to this kind of polar bear who's wandering around. And the polar <laughs> bear has the voice of esteemed Canadian actor Gordon Pinsent. Um, and so they have this kind of like dialogue that goes over the course of the movie. Eventually, Dane Han and Tatiana Maslany's character have to like run away from their lives in this small community and they go off very foolheartedly into uh, the wild with just a snowmobile and some supplies. And they end up like having to shelter from a storm and then they die. The characters just die at the end. 
and they literally like they dug themselves into an igloo and then they get frozen into the igloo uh-huh. in a block of ice and i think one of the final shots of the movie is them being cut out of the igloo in a block of ice like just like frozen like right. you know ca- <laughs> like caveman style and it's it's a combination of like the movie is it wasn't very good and it didn't uh-huh. really sustain that stuff but it did the one thing that it did do that arctic you know kind of decided to play a little bit fast and loose with was it committed to the ending you know right i mean they you know it was bleak going up until that point and it decided to stick the bleak uh stuff right right through to the end so um you can't say that they they faked it out right right speaking of not faking anything uh this is the documentary the last dance this was one of the most hyped documentaries sports documentaries i can from recent memory i can ever remember actually and it's a Netflix ESPN co-production, ESPN in the States, Netflix in Canada. And we're about two episodes into this 10 episode documentary. And so far it has been fantastic. Um, so they're doing like a weekly release, like every one episode a yeah, week? Yes, two, two episodes per week. And because ESPN has broadcasting rights in the States, it is released every Sunday. So... Netflix will get it worldwide the day after, so it'll be every Monday. So over the next four weeks, since we already got two episodes, we will get the whole shebang. And it's essentially about Michael Jordan and the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls season. Uh, the, The season they won their sixth championship and basically brought about the end of the Chicago Bulls dynasty that was so dominant throughout the 90s. Our biggest challenge is us. I am cursed with this mentality of competitiveness. Competition was an addiction. Every day was a battle. Dennis, get up here! Boom. They don't hear it. See Dennis for 48 hours. No matter what we did, it seemed like it was a story. And also, a huge, I think, landmark in pop culture um, because of Michael Jordan's lasting uh, legacy as probably the best basketball player of all time. Certainly um, one that our generation attaches itself to and also for his impact on the shoe industry, um, the Jordan shoe still today uh, outsells any other shoe made by sponsored or um, released by any other basketball player in the world. Um, I know you're not like a huge basketball fan, Rob, but I do highly recommend it because it's not only about basketball, it's about egos and power and money. Everything that we love about people in billion dollar industries right well i have like a tangential kind of like i've orbited the world of basketball um in certain ways like i watched uh, steven soderbergh's movie um high flying bird yep. last year and have you that, seen hoop dreams i have seen hoop dreams so that was like you know i've i've kind of like you know the I, i've been touching down in these certain things that are about basketball but without right. ever really learning all of the people involved or the history or anything all i know about this period though is unfortunately space jam <laughs> so uh you know i know from space jam that like they they managed to work in this part into that movie where he becomes a baseball player rather um ill-advisedly mm-hmm. and they kind of crack a few jokes about that as like a career move and then mm-hmm. you know imply that he gets back into basketball because of his experience beating the monsters and the looney tunes world uh, so where does the Space Jam fit into the chronology of what we're seeing in this series? Okay. Well, first of all, let me look up when Space Jam was released because I believe is 96. Okay. So 
So Space Jam was released in 1996. Uh, this Bulls documentary season occurs after Space Jam. So by this time, Michael Jordan was at the peak of his power. There was no other player in basketball that was more powerful to him. So Michael Jordan actually ret- retired twice. Uh, so he retired in 1993 with the baseball thing, as you said, came back in 95, did Space Jam. And this part of his NBA career was at the time where people thought, well, you know what, you know, uh, maybe he's too old. Uh, we don't exactly know why he went into baseball. There are a lot of stories in the past about why he actually did it. And it culminates in his second retirement from the NBA and then only to see him come back with the Washington Wizards uh, much later on when he was in his 30s. But this is important because this season was the last season the Chicago Bulls sort of core players uh, were kept together because of money reasons, ego reasons, backstabbing reasons. The footage that they've got was filmed throughout the season, but only now has it been released. And only it has only been released now because Michael Jordan said he, he could. So it, if you watch it, Keep in mind that this is very much Jordan's story. I think it is very much an unapologetic look at how brutal and how unforgiving Jordan is as a teammate because he is brutal. He He's famously known to have made like his teammates cry, uh, ended careers because he's like, he's such a hard ass. But at the same time, um, it kind of paints him in this light as sort of like, a hero who does not compromise. And we like heroes that don't compromise because the goal they're trying to attain is something honorable or something big, something bigger than everyone else. Right. It's kind of like that's a that's a, a something that plays out in like other sports as well, where like sometimes you just have to, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, push through and not get too worried about how people feel about something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So he's sacrificing sort of like a nice guy image or the greatest player ever to show people like how rough and tough and how difficult it was for him. And, and granted it is uh, one of the top stories ever. The finals against the Utah jazz has is, you know, the stuff of legend basically. Um, but I, I, I do think if you can get past the first two episodes, which are out now, I think it's worthwhile because from what I've heard, and very few people have actually seen all the footage that have been, has been filmed in season, the next episodes are apparently just fireworks. Like, never have we ever had this kind of look uh, at one of the greatest athletes in the world. It's kind of like uh, that documentary, When We Were Kings, uh, about the Muhammad Ali fight, Rumble in the Jungle, where uh. it was filmed for many years, the, the couldn't get financing, and all of a sudden they released this documentary and it just blew everything wide open. Right. Yeah. It's like um, uh, th- this is in a completely different industry altogether, but uh, the the recent Netflix thing where they did they released uh, Orson Welles's uh, fabled final production, The Other Side of the Wind, and then right. at the same time released a, the making of uh, documentary. And it turned out that the making of documentary was actually a, a more interesting watch because it talked about just how screwed up everything was on the set of this movie. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it gave you some insight into, you know, the Hollywood uh, industry and that kind of thing at the time. And, you know, the stuff that Wells had to put up with and uh, that kind of thing. Um, and his own, like Wells, own like appetites and predilections, making things harder. Sometimes it's like, you know, when there's been a long wait to actually see something, 
uh, when you finally peel back that curtain, it's like you, you can you can understand why there's so much drama there. And a lot of people point out, and this came, became news recently, is that so the most apt comparison people have to the modern day Michael Jordan for a lot of people was Kobe Bryant. And so it just came out that Kobe Bryant actually also hired a film crew to document his last season, last ever season. And considering how successful this has been, um, I'm pretty sure that we will see a Kobe Bryant last dance type documentary in the near future. It's funny how Netflix has kind of like made a, a thing out of the basketball specifically, like more so than other sports, I would say, because they have like like the Soderbergh movie and then they have Uncut, Uncut Gems has a whole subplot to do with basketball. And, right. you know, that's very tied in. And now this documentary and, you know, I would I could see the Kobe thing making its way to Netflix, too. It's interesting that people gravitate towards basketball. Um, I don't know if it's because we're in North America, but basketball is just like a big thing here, right? Like soccer is the global thing, but basketball is a very, um, the, the first I'd say sport that was marketed overseas that did super well, like hockey can't do it. Boxing little limited because it it can be so brutal that it doesn't uh, generate fans from a younger demographic. And I think basketball too, it's apparent when you see someone is good. Like if a guy puts in the basket, the the ball into the basket a lot, you probably have a good sense of how good he is. It's not like soccer or hockey where sometimes greatness is a little harder to see. Not to mention that basketball also has a lot of ties to poverty, uh, the great American dream. As we've seen in Hoop Dreams, a lot of inner city kids, especially black kids, they idolize these players and they sacrifice a lot of things to to do what their heroes can do, even though we know, and maybe them, they know as well, the the odds are very much against them. So it becomes a, this sort of, sort of story about triumph, and yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the NBA is far more um, accessible than, say, the National Football League, which has very similar stories, but again, a, a very violent sport that doesn't have an audience outside of North America at all. Yeah, and it has, like, um, um, bigger kind of uh, requirements on the on the kids participating where they need to buy the gear, like the helmets and the pads and stuff. The same thing with hockey, where hockey can be expensive for families to get into. Yes, you know, it's if you very expensive. Buy, buy all the stuff. Um, I guess less so with ba- with baseball because you can all you need is a stick and a and a ball. But yeah. um, the- so the difference between baseball is that you need a field. So that's that's always been the biggest barrier to entry. Like a basketball, you can you can stick a basket on a wall anywhere, sure, right? Yeah, with, yeah. with baseball, you need a big field, and and those can be hard to come by. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Like I was saying when we were talking about uncut gems, like I have no like real historical understanding of the people involved. So you know when when <laughs> uh-huh. I ended up loving that movie, but then you were unconvinced until you heard that uh, KG was in it. <laughs> <laughs> you again buried the lead. <laughs> that was just a funny like extra dimension to it that I was totally unaware of. So. Uh, the, yeah, like I could, you know, because I've kind of been consuming a lot of like this basketball adjacent stuff on Netflix, maybe I maybe I could get into The Last Dance without too much trouble. Yeah, so it, it sets up, sets the stage pretty well. Like there's a lot of background information to go through, but um, they do a really good job. And like most documentaries, kind of like the OJ doc that, that uh, made America, the first few episodes are background knowledge. And then it gets really into the good stuff because you really need to have an idea of what's going on. Um, before they get to the sort of conflicts that arise from all this. 
Well, that's all the time that we had. As always, uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, leave a leave a review on the podcast, like whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast. Try to leave a review because that that helps us out a lot when it comes to like visibility. Uh, you know, sharing it with other people, helping more people discover this this wonderful wonderful time we Please have. Please listen and rate. Yes, and like. And whatever buttons they tell you to yeah, use. Yeah, just feed, feed that algorithm. Just just click all of them. <laughs> uh, head on over to kinetoscope.ca where we, you'll be able to read a review by Jason on Extraction, the Chris Hemsworth uh, action vehicle that just hit Netflix, as well as a couple of uh, articles that I wrote on The Expanse and what it's like to watch that on, while we're in quarantine, the kind of weird way that that show syncs up with the virus and uh, Tales from the Loop, uh, which we talked about on uh, the previous episode. I've got it all written up for you uh, if you want a little bit more detail on that. Um, but until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 